Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisor Practice Podcast by Stamp Projections, episode 47. I'm your host, Pavel Dramensky, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisor practice today. For more information and additional content, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Cindy Badu. As a family wealth transition advisor, Cindy helps individuals, family enterprises, business owners, and family offices navigate the complexities and opportunities that come with wealth. In her practice, Cindy draws on over 25 years of legal, fiduciary, trust, and governance experience in professional services firms, financial institutions, and family offices. She uses her skills to provide an objective perspective and facilitate understanding of how complex family, business, and ownership structures can impact family dynamics and family wealth continuity. In 2018, Cindy was awarded the prestigious Global Step Private Client Award, People's Choice Trusted Advisor of the Year. Cindy strongly believes in giving back to professional and charitable causes. Throughout her career, Cindy has been actively involved as a speaker, author, and committee or board member for a variety of professional organizations, including the Society of Trust and Estate Profit Practitioners, the Chartered Professional Accountants of Alberta, and the Canadian Tax Foundation. She currently serves as the chair of the STEP Worldwide Business Families Global Steering Committee and is director at large of the STEP Canada Board. Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. And I can tell you it's a relief to talk about something other than the election this early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're recording this right after right after elections. And uh, I, I know there will be a lot of emotions <laughs> around that, but yeah. let's let's focus here on our content. So Cindy, I'm really excited to have you on. I was really looking forward to this interview. So let's let's dive right in. Uh, so tell me about, a little bit about yourself. So what do you do and who do you serve? Yeah, it's I had a bit of an unusual background. As you mentioned in the introduction, I actually started started out as a chartered accountant, as it was called in the day, and then switched gears to law and practiced as a tax and estate planning lawyer for many, many years. So pretty much every young girl's dream, that, that career trajectory. But eventually, I, I transitioned to work really quite differently with families. And along the way, I obtained my family enterprise advisor designation. So I have this really unusual blend of what I'd call technical hard skills and soft emotional skills, which turns out to be very well suited to the kind of work that I do right now, which is I have my own practice and I work in a really multifaceted field of what I'll refer to as family wealth transition planning. So what I find in in terms of what I do is Way too many families are willing to stake everything they work so hard for on a basically a hope and a prayer that everything's going to turn out all right. You, you know, people will say things like, we're not the kind of family that would fight over money, or we're not the kind of family that needs family meetings, and we all get along really great, and that's not going to change when I die. But unfortunately, uh, family and money are pretty emotional topics. And they are very messy and and they're inextricably linked. So they're just the two kinds of topics that are going to lead to a lot of conflict. And if people choose to ignore the relationship between family and money, it's often going to be an unfortunate outcome. And they usually won't discover that until it's too late in the game to do anything about it. Interesting. So, yeah, so you're really helping people at this interesting point in time when they accumulate that wealth and they're thinking about or planning on transitioning wealth to future generations. So we'll we'll talk about in a second about some of the issues uh, around that. But you're already asked, answering my question about your early days. So an accountant turned lawyer and right now an advisor. So, but why does this business exist for you? Why, why did you follow this transition uh, in your business and, and why did you end up where you are today? Why does this matter to you? Ah, yeah. Well, that's a really good thought process to go through because it's uh, not a normal trajectory at all. Absolutely. Uh, in in my CA articles, I I worked with. I had the opportunity to work with both public companies, which I found to be just completely soul sucking, and entrepreneurs and families. And I really liked the work that I was doing with entrepreneurs, but I didn't like the the number side at all. And so I like that connection, like helping people, helping families. And 
I decided that I was going to go back to law school and do this tax and estate planning focus in my in my law practice, which I did for many years and had a very successful legal practice. But I really became disillusioned with the process of like preparing these great big long legal memos and documents like trustees and shareholders agreements and you know incorporation documents, all those things that are really, really important and necessary. But the clients rarely ever understood them. And so what eventually became really apparent to me is that the clients, and, and in the world I used to work in, the clients were usually dad or maybe mom and dad. Mm-hmm. They never ever had any discussions with their kids about the plans that they made. And, and the kids are the ones who are going to be impacted by the plan. So I now refer to what I used to do, things like doing estate freezes and, and that kind of tax-driven planning as doing structures to people. And it's really, really destructive. So I just wanted to shift gears dramatically to become, again, with this weird blend of hard and soft skills that I have, a resource to families and to other advisors to help blend and integrate the the emotional side of family wealth with the technical, financial, estate, wealth management side and, and really be there, I call it as an, as an architect in the early stages. And what I mean by that is you'd never go to like an architect, say you're building a new house, you'd never go to an architect and say, uh, just build me a new house, let me know when it's ready and give me the keys. You'd, you'd have a lot of conversations with the architect about what you want the house to look like, how are you going to use the house, how long you expect to be in the house, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to have those conversations before you actually build the house. And once we get to the point where we're ready to build the house, I kind of shift into uh, what I call general contractor mode. And again, because I have this very weird background of having worked in all these different areas that you mentioned in my introduction, I kind of know how to, uh, I don't kind of know, I know <laughs> how to <laughs> help people yes. find find the right advisor for what it is we, we need to build. And like a general contractor, if you're putting solar panels on your roof, you don't go and hire the guy who does asphalt tiles, Right. And you need to know who's coming in in what order so that things are done in the proper order and you get the best possible outcome at the end of the day. Right, right. So let's let's maybe focus on just, uh, I want to focus on the core problem, right? And uh, in terms of your experience, I mean, you definitely have a lot of experience. Uh, you know, from our conversations, I know that you've been helping as an advisor families of, you know, past $1 billion in net worth, which is definitely not something that a typical advisor does. So, but let's get to the core of the problem. What are some of the key issues with transitioning wealth in family businesses in Canada? And I have a little bit of stats thing that came from a few of you as well, but it looks like we have nearly 900,000 family businesses in Canada. They contribute over 60% to GDP, employ over 6 million people, donate over 1.5 billion to charity. Then let's talk about stats around the transition. So how many of them will transition to the next generation and the following generation? Oh, yeah. The, The statistics are appallingly low. And the general rule of thumb that gets talked around is the successful wealth transition from one generation, first generation to the second, is got about a 30% chance 30%. of success, and 30%. And then to the next generation after that, it's about 10%. So it's very low. Yeah, it's it's very low. And as you mentioned in some of those statistics, family family businesses and the, the wealth of families in Canada are hugely impactful on our communities and our GDP. And so as advisors, it's really, really important that we help families transition successfully. So they're not losing those financial resources, but they're also not blowing their families up in the process. Right. So let's talk, let's talk about some of the causes of the failures, right? Because the statistics, when I looked at those stats, I'm like, oh my God, this is like, what what's wrong with, with this process and why those stats are so low? And I have a lot of ideas around it, of course, but I want to hear from you. What what are some of the issues and uh, or, or causes of those failures, right? Like, is this, there's not enough tax advisors, for example, or is there something uh, in Canada or tax lawyers in Canada, or there is something else? Like, what are some of the, can you talk a little bit about what are the major causes of the failures here? Yeah. 
In the U.S., they've done some studies on this. And the statistic, I think I'm just going from memory at this point, but I think 60% of what they attribute these uh, wealth transition failures, we'll call it, is attributed to breakdown in communication and trust. And then I think about another 20 or 15% is related to unprepared errors. So the next generation hasn't been adequately set up to be good stewards of the wealth. And then about 10% is because there's just a complete lack of mission or vision. And I might have those those statistics backwards, but only 3% is related to tax and financial planning. And so advisors, myself in my prior world included, we, we we focus almost relentlessly on this 3% right? and, and not this other chunk of, of where things go haywire. Absolutely. And when again, when I looked at the stats, 3% really is the tax and financial planning issue. So we're focused completely on, a, on something that, that doesn't really matter when it comes to transition. And we think that matters, right? But, uh, but uh, those stats are, are, are interesting as well. So so let's talk about how how do we can how can we combat that? Like, what are some of the actually before even even go, we we go there? Let's maybe define even some terms because you know you mentioned family businesses, you mentioned family enterprises, and I don't think a lot of advisors uh, and where maybe our listeners are not maybe familiar uh, familiar with the difference. What is the difference between a family business and family enterprise? So a family business is exactly that a family that has uh, a business, and that can be a very small corners corner store grocery or some sort of retail operation in your local community to very, very large uh, family businesses like the McCain's, right? Right. So, so family businesses can be, the scope of family businesses is very, very broad. And as advisors, we, te- we typically think about family business. But what's really interesting is in the type of work that I do now is we really need to focus on the family enterprise. And certainly the family enterprise encompasses the family business, but it also encompasses all of the other assets that a family will have. So that would include things like their home, any, perhaps they have some rental properties, many, it's not, I'd say every high net worth family that I work with would have a vacation, at least one vacation property, often in, in another country. They have collections. Many have, you know, significant art collections, for example. They'll have their investment portfolio. They'll have their their registered investments. They'll have insurance plan products. They'll, you know, on and on and on. And what we do as advisors traditionally is we silo all these things out and different advisors help with these different asset classes, I'll call them. And, and, and that just perpetuates this problem of, of working in silos and not having a cohesive, collaborative plan that looks at everything that the family owns. And one of the things, just kind of on that point, when I talk about collections, for example, first of all, people often will say that, you know, my situation isn't that complex. Well, as soon as you've got a holding company and a family trust, which most high net worth people do, you've got complexity. But where anybody who's gone through a divorce or knows somebody who's gone through a divorce or has heard of other families that have broken down or had all kinds of disagreements when somebody in the family dies, it's usually about silly things, what we, you know, we'll air quotes, silly things like the toaster oven or the straws in the jar at the front door. Huh. It's not about, I mean, it, it is about the money, but it's it's that emotional stuff. Like, where's that emotional connection so I can really almost take revenge at the other person because I know they really, really want that, whatever it is. Makes sense. So, so this is really interesting, right? So, so sometimes those little things actually that there's this emotional attachment uh, to those little things, and they they can be basically leveraged against uh, you know somebody else with, as part of the family. But so let's talk about again. Let's go. Let's come back to some of the the, the, the questions. Uh, I, a question I wanted to actually ask earlier. So, all right. So we have this family enterprise, just not a family business, as you said. There, there's home, vacation property or properties, real estate, investment portfolios. Uh, they have maybe you know foundations, for example, that they they have they. Manage, right, so uh, it's it's a very complex organism. There is typically a lot of people involved, and and just for context, 
like where where is the high net worth uh, for you? I, I know that you work with some really high net worth uh, families, but is this? Are we talking about you know typically your average client? Is this basically as you work with other advisors? Would it be I don't know two million, ten million, hundred million? What is sort of the area that will be more of a typical client where you can add value? Yeah, so I'd say assets in excess of fifteen million is a pretty good benchmark. The general rule of thumb is, and we haven't talked about family office, but once you're over around 300 million in net worth, families will start to look at setting up or belonging to uh, setting up their own family office, single family office, or having a, joining a, a multifamily office. So up until that sort of 250, 300 million bracket, there's this whole range of families in Canada and there's there's a there's a lot there's in within Alberta I think somebody told me there's about 800 families in Calgary alone that would be in that in that wealth bracket they they don't have access to necessarily the the type of resources that they need to set up these more sophisticated you know one-on-one kind of family offices for their own for their own family so I would say most of my families that I work with would be in that 20, 25 to 100-ish plus net worth. Perfect. Makes sense. So so let's talk a little bit about how do you work as part of the team with other advisors, right? Because as I understand, you you, you may be helping clients on your on your own, but I mean, t- typically there's already a network of advisors because when you get to especially 10, 15, 20, 25 million, there's at least probably four or five and the other individuals, right? So what is your role in the process and, and how you can help to basically increase the success on that the transition family wealth is going to go more smoothly than, than the typical stats would indicate? Yeah, so I, I actually get uh, quite a few referrals from advisors who I've worked collaboratively with in the past. And what people, well, let me just say, first of all, there really is sort of the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point of starting to really see a growing demand in Canada to do things differently. So the light bulb has gone on that we need to be more proactive in these wealth transition more broadly beyond the tax and financial planning. And so advisors who are woke, you know, are are going, yeah, okay, I, I realize that I need to be able to work differently with, with clients, but it, that's not my training, that's not my background, that's not my, my area of expertise. So I really want to focus on what I do really well and work collaboratively with a team, and I would be part of that team. So as advisors go through programs like the the get their family enterprise advisor designation or just start to get family members actually demanding that they work differently with their family, that the advisors are working differently with their family, advisors are starting to feel like, yeah, I need to build, I need to build that network out. It's just the world is way too complicated right now for any single advisor to be all things to, to all clients. And we just really need to be prepared to know our own boundaries and step back and say, you know, this isn't where I can help you best. And I really think you need to meet with Cindy so she can help you get on the right track and figure out where we want to go. And then I can really do a great job for you based on what your goals and objectives are as a family. Makes sense. So let's say you have a referral. Let's say there's an advisor typically working maybe with, uh, you know, let's say with that kind of client, but clients, but there is a, you know, let's say the client is basically beyond what they typically uh, can handle. Let's put it this way. And they come to you and say, Cindy, help, help me out here. So what is your approach to advising and, and serving uh, a client in this, in this in this situation. How would you start? Where would you start? What would you do first? What would you focus first, uh, and how that would unfold? So the very first thing, obviously, is going to spend time with the, the advisor themselves to understand their perspectives on what the client's needs are and where they think that I can add value and why I've been why they've reached out to me. Then I hopefully will have a first meeting with the client. Oftentimes, what will happen is the, and by that I mean a face-to-face. And usually the advisors will just set that up. 
sometimes they want to be there in the room as well, but oftentimes they just say, you know, I want you to, to, to meet with this client. And typically that's with dad or mom and dad first. And it'll be a very general conversation about you know, what are they looking for? What are they, what are they feeling they're missing? I, I, I worked with a, just, just in the last month was, was very interesting because I had a, a client reach out to me because their kids said, you know, we, we want to work with somebody and the kids had gotten my name, kids of another family that I had worked with. So this didn't come to the advisor path. It came through a, through another client referral quite indirectly. But the, the kids uh, were really focused on, we want to do this right, which is so cool because you've got that next generation that's becoming really engaged in this. And, and saying, you know, we just don't want our family to blow up. We want to do this really, really well. And we, we don't, we're not feeling like entitled or or anything, but we just want to work together as a family to be as successful as we possibly can. So I'm not sure I kind of went off on a bit of a tangent there, but it, it makes sense because you know what? It's it's so interesting to actually hear this perspective because I mean, you know, when it comes to millennials, I mean, the typical approach is that, that you hear right now, especially in the workforce, inconsistent or low performance and high expectations. So when you have, and I'm sorry, I, I will probably, I'm a millennial myself, so <laughs> I'm uh, I'm probably <laughs> saying something that maybe I shouldn't, maybe maybe I'll upset a couple of people or, or a lot of people with this, but but that's the truth, right? I mean, that's 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 uh, that's the stereotypical millennial, and of course, not everybody is, is like this, but but to have this kind of per- per perspective that somebody comes in, some somebody younger comes in, and their, their children come come in, and, and they say, we don't want our family to blow up. We've seen other horror stories. We just we really make sure we. Want Want to make sure that we we do it right. So that's that's unusual. And and I think that the other question I want to well, ask about that: if you then what happens if you don't have that perspective right from the get go? Like, what can you do to basically bring everybody on the same on the same page? Mm, yeah, the if, if mom and dad are on board, usually I find frankly it's the hardest part is getting mom and dad on board. And not to be stereotypical, but often, not always, but often it's the wife, uh, you know, in a, in a traditional family dynamic that is saying, I, I just don't feel comfortable with what's going on. I'm not sure I understand things. What if something happens to you? I don't, I'm just not really comfortable and often not comfortable with advisors uh, in, in the traditional sense, because they don't want to ask the dumb questions. They feel like, you know, they've got all this wealth and they should know better. Or they should understand all this stuff. And the advisors don't understand all this stuff. So, you know, we really need to normalize those sorts of, of feelings. But, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic to, to, to get in the door. Once you're in the door, in, in the sense of sitting down and meeting with, with a family, I would say probably 80% of families after one meeting, just they, they almost are, it's a sense of relief. Just, oh my God, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And, and what I'm starting to find is when, you know, referrals from clients are frankly the, the strongest possible referral that, that you can get. Right. And, and what I find is the referrals from clients they they realize that I've helped them in a way that they couldn't get help from other advisors on their team. And that's not to say I'm more important or less important. Every single advisor on the team is important. But what they're really looking for is to just have somebody to actually sit down and talk to them and say, you know, what's going on? What's important to you? What are your goals? Where are you seeing disconnects? What's your vision for your family wealth? How does your family have fun together? Where, where do you think see you know potential for conflict? What are your priorities over the next 5, 15, 20 years? And pulling that all together in a, in a way that's family-centric. It's a very, very different approach. Right. Makes sense. So uh, you mentioned client acqu- a little bit of a client acquisition. So how do you typically acquire clients? Is this basically through your network of referrals? You've been in the business for such a long time. You have great reputation. You've, you've uh, worked on, on a lot of you know, big and small and, and really interesting and complex cases, right? So how do you typically acquire clients right now? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I do get referrals from advisors and I'm starting to get more and more referrals as I work with more families from other families who really see the need and need for and value in the way that I work. 
And they struggled because they they initially struggled because they didn't know where to get the help they were looking for. And then when they found me, they're like, wow, I, I, you know, I want to tell two friends like the shampoo commercial. You're too young probably to know about (laughs) the shampoo commercial, right? I'll tell two friends and then they'll tell two friends because they really want, you know, their friends and their network to, to succeed. So I'm, I'm really very fortunate that many of my new clients are referrals from, from existing clients. And then, yes, as you say, really through, through a network of, of advisors that had the advantage of working with over the years and coming to know. Excellent. So let's maybe focus a little bit more about working effectively with other advisors, because I want to make sure that, I mean, you're definitely, you're, you're not a typical advisor. You're, you're, you're working with very high net worth families and ultra high net worth families. But I, mm-hmm. I, I want to create value for our listeners who might be serving still high net worth clients, but they may not have the experience at, at your level. So what tips would you give them? How they should be working with you? Like who, you know, should they be part of all those different meetings with a family or there should be just, you know, just maybe the first meeting and then there should be uh, there are I don't know conference calls between all the advisors how do we, you mentioned silos versus collaboration earlier right so how do you make sure and what would you advise other advisors who are coming to you with with referrals what can you tell them or what can you advise them to work effectively with you so they can maximize the outcome for a client yeah the, the process has to be really collaborative right from the get-go in the way that I work and this comes back to this unusual, unique skill set that I have because I come from a very technical background, but I I don't work in that technical background anymore. That said, for me, I it's really important when I start working with a family that I have and they have a very clear understanding not only of you know the family vision, mission, values, what's going on, dynamics, where they want to get to, et cetera. But they, they also know exactly what they've got from a, from a financial wealth perspective right now and what that looks like. And I also do, some people call it a fire drill. I just call it post-mortem. We actually pretend that dad dies first, that mom dies first, that mom and dad died together. And I pull in all the key documents. So I'll look at their wills, their personal directors, their powers of attorney, their family trust, their shareholder agreements. I'll look at all that, all those documents. And I'll be working very closely in conjunction with usually their, their tax accountants at this stage to start to pull together all the information and prepare a if you died today tax return. So it's called a terminal tax return. And I would say over the last 15 years, when I've gone through that exercise with families, I can only think of one client where they've said, oh, yeah, that's what I thought would happen. Because all these different advisors, so whether it's their financial planner, their investment advisors, their tax lawyer, their wills lawyer, their family law lawyer, whoever it is, they work in these silos and they work at very different points in time. And so you get these huge gaps because I mean life's busy and messy and things change all the time. And and so the the reality of the outcomes that they're gonna get are quite different from what they thought. Because most people think, okay, well, I've done my will, that's done. I don't have to worry about it. Oh, I've done my trust, I don't have to worry about it. The lawyer's gonna send me something once a year that I need to sign. And it, it just the, the, this advisor silo thing doesn't work. So I have I mean, I'm very privileged to be able to work very collaboratively with advisors. It includes private, you know, the private banking team, the lenders. I need to understand the debt, especially with, for example, agricultural families. Where's the debt sitting on which, you know, which quarter sections are being secured? I, there was one family that I worked with, you know, get to work this example just of working with, with the bankers. The family thought that their the security was against all sections, all quarter sections of the land. And there were, let's say there were five quarter sections. There were two kids that were not going to continue to work on the farm and one that was. And and so two quarter sections that were sort of peripheral to the, the main operation. Uh, we're going. One was going to go to one one daughter, and one was going to go to another daughter. Well, it turned out that when I, you know, I talked to the banker, the one quarter section was fully leveraged, and the other had no debt attached at all. So that would have been, needless to say, not a particularly helpful outcome if mom and dad had died 
in that particular circumstance. So when I first start, this is a very long-winded way of saying, so when I first start working with a family, I ask them to make introductions to all their key advisors. So I can have a call with them and say, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is my role. I, I really need you to be part of this team. And these are the sorts of things that I really will need your help and, and support with. And establish that really collaborative tone right from the get-go. The other thing that I'm very, very aware of is that, unfortunately, there, there, there are advisors who out there who feel like they need to show that they're the smartest person in the room. And I, you know, I don't mean to offend anybody by that, but it is so destructive to go to a family meeting or any type of a meeting with, with advisors, multiple advisors in the room. And one advisor has to show that they're the smartest person in the room. All that does is tears down the family's confidence. They, they start to, to get really confused. So if, for example, I'm looking at a shareholders agreement, here's another example with a client I actually worked with. So I looked at the, I was going through the shareholders agreement and there was a particular clause, I won't get into the details of it, but there was a particular clause that the way it was drafted for this family circumstances had an outcome that meant paying $5 million in tax versus $0 in tax. Now, some advisors will go to a family meeting and say, I found this mistake in the shareholders agreement. Not, They won't go to the lawyer first and say, can you help me understand why the shareholders agreement was drafted this way? And right. I think it's really, really important that we are very respectful of the relationships that other advisors have with their clients and that they have an opportunity to explain, because there may be very valid reasons that aren't evident on the face of the document as to why something was drafted a certain way. So, right. so I'm because I've worked in I've worked in large financial institutions, I've worked in accounting firms, I've worked in law firms. I'm really sensitive to all those kinds of dynamics, and collaboration is absolutely critical. And the last thing I'll say, because I know I'm going on and on on the answer to this question, keep going, is that when I have family meetings, when I develop the agenda, depending on where we're at in in the process, I will often ask the the family to say, you know, I think this would be a really good point in for this part of the agenda to bring your tax lawyer in or your family law lawyer in, or your investment advisor in, or your financial planner in. Wouldn't it be great if, you know, your kids have said they want some support on financial literacy? Well, let's, let's figure out who the best team of advisors are to make that so and bring them to the table. So it's a very proactive kind of approach. Absolutely. And, and I'm really glad I asked actually this question because it, it becoming, it's becoming clear that your role really is not just to manage the client, make sure that you understand everything technically, but you're essentially managing other advisors. You're basically quarterbacking the whole, I guess, engagement. Let's call it this way. And because, and given your role, you know, you're an accountant, you're a tax, you're, you're a lawyer as well. You're an advisor. You have, uh, you have so much knowledge in different areas and you have those, actually those hard numbers plus the soft skills plus experience. I mean, that, that really makes you perfectly position really to be that person to, to really make sure that you can run the process, you can run the engagement well, and you are really collaboratively involving other advisors at different times, right? Because they're not, not everybody has to be involved at the same time. That's another important point that you've made. So, so this is all great. And that really paints a really interesting picture and, and good, you know, really good positive picture how we work with other advisors. So a question I want to ask you also is that we talked about some pretty horrifying stats about the transition to the second and third generation earlier in your interview, but let's talk about a situation when, what do we do when the family doesn't want to have the business anymore, for example? It's not going to be the legacy business, right? Let's say the world has shifted and some businesses should not be, let's say, continued. Maybe they should be transitioning and there is nobody from the family that basically is interested in running the business or they don't have, they want uh, to run the business, but they don't have the skills, the, the capacity, the drive. They, they basically, they're not experienced enough. So what do you do in, in those kind of situations? How do you handle those kind of situations? Yeah, so if we're focusing specifically on family businesses, that definitely adds another layer of complexity to working with, with families for all the reasons and more that you've, you've just highlighted. Who's going to take over the family business? Do we want the family business to continue on? 
and oftentimes, again, traditionally, those decisions have been left to to the founder, which is typically dad. And they don't want to have those conversations. So they have something in their head about who's going to be who's going to be that that next person to step into the, the CEO role. So I'll share an example of, an, of another client that I worked with where they had a successful family business that had transitioned successfully from generation one to generation two already. And the the three generation two owners were starting to think about one was ready to retire. Another one was not ready to retire at all. And the other one was maybe, you know, five years out. And there were there were kids that were old enough to be involved in uh, in the family business, but certainly not ready to step into a CEO role. But the the parents had assumed that their kids weren't interested in carrying on the business. And they'd actually started going down the path of of a, of a sale of the business. They decided they were going to monetize. And fortunately, those sales fell apart. And they, they, and they say fortunately, because as it turned out, they started having conversations around governance and what governance meant. And many people will think about, they didn't have what we call a fiduciary board or an independent board of directors. They, they as is typical in family businesses, they wear all these hats, right? They're the they're the family member, they're they're the owners of the business, and they work in the business, and they're directors of the business. And so they started thinking about this whole aspect of of governance and and getting some real strategic help on the, the business side to help them figure out what they wanted to do. And through just a series of circumstances, as they were embarking on that process. I was introduced to the family and I said, well, you know, who should be on your board? You need to understand as a family where you want to go with this business. So what conversations have you had with the next generation, generation three, about who wants to be involved or if they want to be involved or they don't want to be involved, if they want to be owners and not work in the business, but carry on the the legacy of ownership of the business, or if they just say, you know what, not interested, sell the whole shooting match. And it was a real eye opener for them. And we, you know, going back to the collaboration a conversation, the advisors that they'd hired to help them with putting a, a family board in place or a business board in place, I was able to work collaboratively with them. So they they were doing a process similar to mine where they do one-on-one interviews of, of all the key, we'll call it C-suite players in the family business. And I worked with the family members. And it turned out that through those conversations, the, the kids in Generation 3 actually were really interested in working in the family business. And when that was identified, it, it was a very, very emotional meeting for the, for the Generation 2 owners because they had made this assumption that they were not going to, the, the next generation wasn't interested in, in carrying on the, on the business and they were probably looking for a sale. So what this did then was it, it totally rejigged the way the board strategy guys were working because they then said, okay, well, we're going to look, they're, they're not ready for, that generation three group wasn't ready yet for, to move into a CEO role by any stretch of the imagination. But what it did was help them focus on what skill sets they needed, number one, to hire uh, within the organization to move into that CEO role until if if and when the Generation 3 were ready for that, but also to populate a board with a very clear vision that this was going to be a long-term family business, that we needed people who could help take it strategically to the next level and to help mentor and guide the rising generation to be part of that family business for whatever that looked like for each of that next generation. Hugely long answer, but hopefully that made some sense. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And it's really useful, right? I mean, it really just highlights what you said earlier, uh, that the wealth transfer failures are 
sometimes due to the breakdown in communication. And that's really 60% of that. And then clearly there is no uh, sufficient communication in this, in this situation. So Cindy, you work, you work with a lot of families and a lot of high net worth families. And as, a, as an accountant, as a lawyer, as a you know, family wealth advisor, a transition advisor, as you call yourself, how do you think about wealth? How, will you, how do you think about wealth management? How do you think wealth? Because I'm sure, I'm sure your perspective probably changed over the years. Uh-huh. Uh... Well, I I don't know what wealth management is. It's one of those terms like estate planning or succession planning that to me now has no meaning because it has a different meaning depending on on who you're talking to. So I I really think this whole you know, terminology about what wealth management is is very misunderstood in in Canada. And there's so many advisors out there that call themselves wealth managers that the public, and myself included, has a really hard time figuring out what wealth management actually means. I think most people traditionally would go to say wealth management is their investment advisor, maybe their banker, but typically they'll say that it's their investment advisor. And that's such a, such a narrow focus. That's, that's focusing on the financial wealth of the family. So my my vision or goal or dream, I guess, is that, and we're starting to do this, is that we're shifting this this whole context of wealth to be much, much broader than financial capital, that it includes what, what's come to be known as, as qualitative wealth in, in the sort of family enterprise advisory world where we have the human capital, so the individuals who are in the family and, and what we're, how we're using our financial resources to, to make sure that they're physically healthy and emotionally, their emotional well-being is, is taken care of, attended to, that you know, they really have a positive sense of, of self-identity. So human capital, the intellectual capital, which is you know, what we would think of normally like going to university, having those academic successes, but also careers, what their career path is, and intellectual capital might look artistic, volunteer, um, what, whatever it is, but that, that intellectual growth and ability to just feel comfortable going out and learning. And then so we've got the human capital, the intellectual capital, and then the social capital or social wealth, which is looking at not only the relationships among the family members, but also with their, their communities locally and, and more broadly. So this term of wealth management for me really is a very, very broad term that encompasses all of the financial, social, human, and intellectual capital that a, that a family has all tied up in a bow around a, a shared dream of where that family wants to get. Wonderful. That's a great answer <laughs> to, to, to this question because uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people call themselves wealth managers, but uh, they really focus on the financial aspect. And this is just the quantitative aspect, probably the easiest to handle, uh, but, but that's just only part of it. So, Cindy, you've been in the business for a long time. So what do you think made you successful in building your practice so far? Success is one of those, again, like wealth management. It's hard to define. In the wealth management sector, for some, success would be defined as probably assets under management. For the type of work that I do now, I would define success as the impact I'm able to have on on the family wealth, as we've just broadly defined it, family dynamics across generations. And I've been successful in my practice because I'm able to bridge those emotional and technical aspects of the wealth planning and, and transition. So, so, so like cookie cutter solutions, like I used to do estate freezes, for example, those are pretty black and white, but I'm really fortunate because I get to work in this messy, wonderful kaleidoscope of color and emotion really needs to be explored with families before we get to the tactics. So I, I think those are the ele- really key elements that made me successful in, in building my practice. Wonderful. So let's talk a little bit more tactically. If, let's say, an advisor would want to maybe uh, reach out to you or for a client, work with you, how are you compensated or how clients would compensate you for your services? What's the typical arrangement? And you don't have to disclose, of, of course, the level of fees. I just want, I'm, I'm just interested whether it's there's a commission structure just, just or fee-for-service. What, what is the nature of the compensation? Mm-hmm. So compensation is agreed to after an initial meeting that I have with the client because I need to get to know a bit about the client and their complexity and how many family members, et cetera, 
one one of the families, probably the the largest single family meeting that I've that I had. We had about twenty people around the table, and that's quite a different dynamic and, and an investment of time and, and re- financial resources than two or four people around a table. Absolutely. So I I charge a flat project fee, and I do not bill on an hourly rate. The reason that I do that is because it's so important, number one, that clients understand the fees up front, and then the fee structure has to encourage open communication with me. So hourly billing that you'll see in traditional accounting and law firms, for example, is super counterproductive because it doesn't encourage open communication. It just creates that kind of dynamic where dad's going to say to the kids, don't call Cindy unless it's really important because it's going to cost me 400 bucks. And if they want to talk to me, there should be absolutely no hesitation. It's also really important to me that the fees are transparent and objective. I do not take referral fees. I don't sell any products. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, my, my fees are standalone fees that the clients make as a financial investment in their family. And unfortunately, the trends are clearly showing that families don't make this kind of investment in the qualitative capital aspects that estate litigation is a very big growth market for lawyers right now. And the legal fees and the years fighting with other family members, whether it's in court or through mediation or arbitration, just take a tremendous, tremendous toll on families. So long story short, it's a a flat project fee that's agreed to up front. Thank you. Very interesting because, again, I think it just basically, as you said, it eliminates this this conflict or perceived conflict of interest. Actually, no, a real conflict of interest, right? Because because basically, I mean, there is probably a concern with lawyers and uh, I have a lot of lawyers in my family, so (laughs) I can probably say that. But, you know, the concern from clients is that, you know, they will be overbuilt, right? Because, you know, and, and some, some lawyers, unfortunately, do that, right? The same thing with, you know, some financial advisors. And, and of course, they're crossing some of the, some of the ethics. And that's what's happening. But uh, that's great. Okay, so a couple of questions here before we wrap up. I think uh, we, we've covered a lot of ground here. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the difficult aspects in advising clients. And I think you've shared a lot throughout the interview here. But I wanted to ask to, to talk about what are some of the, for you, most difficult moments that you've had with uh, with advising clients? It, with the clients themselves or because I, I actually rarely have difficult moments with the clients. I mean, I have emotional moments with clients, but the most difficulties I actually have are related to other advisors. One of the biggest challenges in working this way is other advisors who say they do what I do and charge a nominal fee or no fee because they ultimately get paid by selling a product. And so you talked about this in, in the last question. That creates all kinds of either perceived or actual conflicts of interest. And it, it really devalues the investment that families make in approaching their family wealth transition differently. The, 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 we talked about the silos and working in silos at different points and at different points in time. That, that is really, really difficult for, for clients to get their heads around. I, I'm going to write a book working it with <laughs> advisors because people don't understand that different advisors work at different points in time. They don't know who to go to for what. Do I go to my, my tax accountant for this or my tax lawyer for that? Or do I go to a family lawyer or do I go to my, you know, the, the wills consultant at the bank, who, who do I go? It's so, so, so confusing. And we really need to, as, as advisors, just be confident enough in our abilities and our relationships with our clients to say, you know what, I'm not the right person to deal with this. You, I would like to introduce you to, to whoever and be confident that you're doing the right thing for the client at that moment in time and that, that work and that, that is going to even enrich your relationship with that client more by making those relationships and not trying to be everything that you can be to that particular client because you can't. No, I can't. Nobody can. Right. Well, I, I think an idea of writing the book and explaining this uh, clearly is probably a great idea. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think there's a lot of confusion, especially given the such a low financial literacy among teen consumers. That's, I think that's, uh, that's a great idea. So, Cindy, I'm going to switch gears here and talk, let's talk about some exciting things right now uh, instead of some, some difficult aspects. So what are some of the projects that you're more, most excited in your practice right now over the next, let's say, 6 to 12 months? 
Oh, definitely just growing the practice. I've uh, recently shifted gears to go out on my own and finding that it's very empowering being independent. It, it just eliminates some of those conflict of interest perspectives. But I also have on my radar in, in the very early stages of working on a project to educate and inform advisors and their clients with the objective of raising awareness and understanding about, I'm going to say, say roughly 50 key themes just to help people prepare for the journey through all the different stages of, of life. And it's, it's a really meaningful project. We'll have to come back and do a future podcast once they get a little bit further along. <laughs> sure. But it's really intended to help make the transitions through life less frightening and more process-driven so families aren't financially and relationally blindsided in the process. So this wouldn't necessarily be for, this would be more what I'll call mass affluent and not necessarily the target market that I work with more regularly, but just so the average person on the street, when something happens, everything from, you know, when do I need to get a will? What is a power of attorney? What's a codicil? What does it mean that if an RSP converts to a RIC? Those sorts of things all the way through to some of the concepts that we've, we've, we've talked about today. How, how to advise, who do I go to? Which advisor does what? What happens when my, you know, father who's got leukemia falls down and breaks his hip and my mom is at home and she's got her own challenges and I live in another city and I can't get access to the medical records. So all those sort of really big picture challenges that people only face once in their life to try and give them a bit of a, of a guide to prepare ahead of time. That's a great project. Cindy, this podcast is all about growing your practice. So do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? So let's maybe just focus on one thing. <laughs> I'm going to break the one thing rule. <laughs> I <laughs> Well, first of all, we all have blind spots. So I think, it, you know, acknowledge that we, we all have blind spots and respect the boundaries of your knowledge. I would say, you know, along that same line, no one can be or do everything for their clients. So really important to develop a, a network of just kick-ass collaborative advisors that you like to work with and be sensitive to conflicts of interest. So, so you know who your client is. And, you know, in a law firm, for example, that is typically can only be dad or mom and dad. But in my world, the client is the family. Fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic answer. So, Cindy, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, maybe work with you on a project, maybe, or, or maybe just ask questions about how you do certain things that more tactically that we didn't have a chance to, to get into in the interview, what is the best way to reach you? How people can get a hold of you? Definitely on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can check out my webpage, which is cindyradu.com. And I can be reached at, by email at connect at cindyradu.com. That uh, last name is spelled R-A-D-U, so C-I-N-D-Y radu.com. Wonderful. We'll link it up in the show notes so anybody can actually go to the website. And uh, I think there's some links to your email there and uh, LinkedIn and so on. Perfect. So, Cindy, thank you very much for coming to the show. I think it was uh, this content, is, I think, is going to be illuminating for a lot of advisors. And thank you for sharing your expertise and knowledge. Hopefully, after the election emotions uh, will go uh, <laughs> <laughs> or will settle, I, I think the moment when we publish this episode, when, when it goes uh, goes live, it's, it's going to be a perfect moment for advisors to kind of, okay, forget about elections and so the government whatever whatever is the outcome and focus on helping clients so thanks very much for coming to the show really enjoyed the conversation with you thank you that's it for this episode if you enjoyed it i would really appreciate if you left us a great review in itunes because that helps us get discovered and if you want to get in touch with us please email podcast at snapprojections.com thanks and i'll talk to you next time